الجزيرة بودكاست G20 foreign ministers have been meeting in India at a gathering overshadowed by the war in Ukraine. The host country wanted to talk more about other global challenges. So did this summit bring about any solutions or just highlight deepening divisions? I'm Nick Clark and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Okay, let's take this on. I'm joined by our guests. First up in the UK, in London, is Vicky Price, Chief Economic Advisor at the Centre for Economics and Business Research. In Oxford is Nikita Sood, who is Professor of Politics, the Politics of Development at the University of Oxford. And also in London is Chris Weaver, Chief Executive Officer of Macro Advisory, an independent global advisory firm. Welcome to all of you. Great to have you here to have this important discussion. So, Nikita, first of all, first up, how important an event was this for Prime Minister Modi, for his domestic audience, domestically? The G20 presidency is very important for Prime Minister Modi, for India. Um, There are billboards, you know, hailing India as the G20 president all across the country. You cannot miss it. Um, On these billboards, India is projecting itself as a Vishwa guru uh, or a leader of the world. Uh, And Modi, of course, you know, is on all those posters as well. Um, All this is important for Modi because India goes to the polls in 2024, so next year, and Modi would like the momentum from the G20 um, and his projection of himself as a statesman to carry him into his third term in office. Um, So both for the international standing of India and for the domestic audience, this is a very important moment. All right, good for him to be seen as a, a statesman on the global stage, I guess. And Nikita, just one more thing. So he would have liked this to have been all about his agenda as opposed to what it became, the, the war in Ukraine. Absolutely, which is why um, both the foreign minister of India and Mr. Modi have made references to India being the land of Gandhi, of the Buddha, um, who you know taught us to agree, um, even if you disagreed on many things, to have common ground, to come to consensus. Um, and that's very much speaking to the constant backdrop of this G20 summit, which is, of course, the events in Ukraine and Russia. So India would have liked this to play out very differently, of course. Of course. Uh, Vicky, if I may come to you. So uh, Prime Minister Modi had his agenda, you know, as the champion of the global south, as they say. But the the Ukraine war was always going to be the focus here, given the divisions there are. Well, absolutely. And we expected that uh, to to happen. I mean, nevertheless, uh, there has been considerable discussion on other things as well. I mean, the the focus, as we know, for this this G20 G20 meeting uh, was to talk about cooperation uh, in particular, so uh, multilateralism, uh, because, of course, we've seen a lot of that disappear during not just uh, the COVID period, but also uh, since the war in Ukraine. Food security, I mean, all these issues and climate change, too, which affect particularly the developing 
countries and the ones, of course, that uh, Modi wants to focus on. Uh, so so the discussion is there, but whether, in fact, there is any conclusion that can come, of course, we have to wait and see you know, what more may be happening when you know, there is a proper summit later on. But uh, that is uh, one of the concerns, of course, that we're talking about it, but what it means for uh, the developing South, if you like, or the global South, mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, is pretty worrying, in fact, looking ahead. And there's this, Vicky, there's this difficult balancing act in a sense, isn't there? Because the bottom line is that India cannot afford to alienate either Russia or, uh, or the West. No, absolutely. And, uh, and of course, we've seen that India has not been willing to condemn what Russia has been doing. And there is considerable concern that, you know, all the sanctions that have been imposed by the West on, on Russia may not be working, mainly because a number of countries are continuing to operate or perhaps even pass goods through, you know, their own borders to uh, Russia rather than uh, the sanctions, of course, working the way that they were meant to be. And there is also concern that quite a lot of the sales of things that Russia cannot sell, such as oil to the West, are now going to places like, and gas going to places like India and others. So there is a bit of a split that's happening. So we're talking about multilateralism, but actually what has been happening in the last year or so has moved us further away from that. And I think if there were any chances of the G20 really focusing on that, uh, but perhaps with Modi in charge, or at least with India in charge of G20, that may not happen. Mm. Uh, Chris, we've, uh, uh, let's take Vicky's point on this lack of condemnation from India uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the fact that it buys oil at a discounted price and then sells it on. How much of an issue is that in multilateralism? How, how much of an issue is that as far as uh, India's other partners are concerned? Yeah, well, potentially it, it is a, a major issue because at the core, uh, you can see that uh, what Russia is doing, selling oil in particular at a discount to countries like India, it is shifting economic competitiveness and certainly in energy hungry industries from Europe to countries like India to Asia. We have some examples, BASF, of course, a big German chemical manufacturer saying that they are closing down operations in Germany because of the increasing cost of energy there and are likely to reopen in India or maybe uh, Turkey or other countries. Uh, and one of the reasons is, of course, they're getting uh, kind of cheap energy from, from, uh, from Russia. So, yeah, I think the longer this goes on, the more of this kind of divide and resentment uh, rising at a political level we will see. But also, of course, while, while Moscow has never so specifically asked for political support from countries like India or the other Asian countries, even in Turkey, it, it, it is acquiring that kind of, I won't say support, but lack of con condemnation, maybe the, the fact that they abstained at, at, at the votes in the UN. Uh, it, it, is, it is getting that position because it is providing these kind of economic advantages. Uh, in other words, cheap energy, cheap oil, cheap coal, and eventually cheap gas. Uh, so indirectly, uh, Russia is able to rely on uh, quasi-support, certainly lack of condemnation from those countries at a time when Western economies are feeling more and more pressure, uh, economic pressure, uh, be because of the, the impact of, of, of the war. So I think this is always going to come to a head this year. Uh, it was always going to come to a head at the, the G20 summit in, in September, and I think between what happens now, between now and say the September summit, 
uh, is going to be very critical as to what the world will look like in terms of this divide. Will we get a divide or, or will there be some uh, common ground? Not, uh, Nikita, uh, when Modi says multi multilateralism is in crisis, he's not wrong, is he? <laughs> yes, so Modi, um, you know, loves to hate India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was from the opposition, you know, the current opposition Congress party. Um, but India, right from independence in 1947, uh, has championed the cause of non-alignment. This was, of course, in the shadow mm -hmm. Um, of the Cold War, where India and other newly independent countries like Indonesia uh, or Egypt, uh, you know, wanted to be non-aligned and not with either the first, you know, so-called first world led by the USA um, or the second world led by uh, the, the then USSR. Uh, and in a way, India and many global South countries are continuing in that tradition um, saying the world is now very different. It is not a unipolar world where the U.S. and the Western bloc um, can, you know, set the agenda for us. And therefore, we want reform of major global institutions like the U.N. Uh, and we want to be a multilateral, multipolar world. So, you know, that's that's a consistent line India has had. This moment is no different. I wonder, Vicky, when, when uh, we talk about non-alignment, as uh, Nikita just alluded to there, but in fact, India is aligned to Russia, isn't it? In the sense that it is, it is taking its oil, uh, which is coming at a cheaper price because of the war. So, you know, it's basically supporting the war effort, you could argue. Well, it's interesting because that is happening on the one hand. On the other, what you're seeing is that quite a lot of countries in the West are trying to have closer trade ties with India. Maybe it's a reaction, but uh, the UK is talking about it more. Uh, Europe is talking about it more. So I think there are active efforts to reintegrate, if you like, India in the Western orbit, if that is at all possible. Um, and India's interest must lie in being able to export and do business and get a lot of investment mm. uh, from the West. So you'd imagine that, uh, you know, that happening in parallel, if you like, maybe acting as a counterbalance to uh, the other tendencies that we have seen recently towards Russia. When Modi says, Vicky, that we should not allow issues we cannot resolve together to come in the way of those that we can, uh, you do wonder what issues there are that can be resolved in the current climate. Well, there is quite a lot going on right now on mm. the trade front. I already mentioned, of course, what's happening in terms of trying to have closer ties with India anyway. But uh, there are issues in terms of uh, various countries and some big countries like the US, um, you know, looking at uh, sort of having a competitive advantage in the climate change front. So with a lot of subsidies for businesses, uh, in fact, developing and innovating uh, in that area uh, on the US itself, so on, on the ground, uh, rather than doing things elsewhere. So you're already seeing a, a move of production. You know, we, we heard earlier about uh, moves towards India with cheaper oil, but also in terms of subsidies that exist, uh, them going to the US as well. So we've seen that happening in Europe. And Europe is reacting by doing something similar itself, or at least talking about it. So there is um, an issue about what can the institutions do to ensure this multilateralism, if you like, uh, uh, is maintained, and uh, the WTO itself uh, is an institution that you know, people have talked about for quite some time in terms of needing reform. It seemed to be getting a few more teeth recently, uh, but those are uh, aspects 
uh, in terms of international competitiveness and any unfair practices, if the, those can be deemed to be that, that uh, those institutions should be looking at to ensure that at least there is, uh, you know, both in terms of investment and trade, um, and the moves which uh, help uh, the world economy overall rather than just uh, end up in silos of, of you know, subsidized nations that can afford to do so, leaving loads of others disadvantaged. So there are those issues that I think can be discussed and perhaps should be discussed. And indeed, Chris, the, the, this focus on the Ukraine war is, is taking attention away from those crucial issues of, that we've talked about, of the global south that's, that's, that needs focus, food security, climate change and so forth. Yeah, I, uh, it certainly is taking away from, from those issues, but it is brought back onto the table other issues, and, and we talk about the, you know, the, the uh, if you like, the, the, the resentment in, in developing economies, in Asian economies in particular, over the fact that uh, when the climate debate uh, kind of really gained ground or gained prominence a few years ago, that there was a great deal of resentment in, in economy, countries in Asia that the West, which had, you know, kind of uh, used or disregarded the climate to develop their own economies, to, to industrialize and to become great economic powers. They were now preaching to Asian and to developing economies that were only further down the process. Um, and, and now, you know, we can see that the uh, Russia highlighting, if you like, the, uh, what it refers to as the dominance of, of the West, of the US and big institutions like the UN and World Bank and IMF and others, uh, this whole debate over, you know, the, the kind of uh, what should be the relationship between developing economies in Asia and the developed economies in, in the West, there needs to be a better balance. So if, if you like, while specific discussion about how to kind of reduce uh, carbon emissions and specific issues about climate have taken a back seat, the whole question of, of equity and of kind of a, a balanced relationship between West and developing East is very much back on, on the table. And, and the, the, the war in Ukraine and uh, the, what Russia has been saying about the kind of the, the, the Western kind of influence as well, I think has brought these tables back on, uh, brought these issues back onto the table. And if we're not careful, then I think the end result will be a much greater divide between East and West rather than, you know, bringing both sides closer together. Do you agree with that, Vicky, that, that it could lead to a much greater divide? Uh, it could. And I think one has to work very hard to ensure that that doesn't happen. Mm. Uh, and of course, what it does require is quite a lot of uh, transfer of resources from the West to those countries that uh, now need uh, a lot more support in order to adapt to climate change and also not lose out, if you like. Um, and we know that there are various regions in the world which will be particularly affected uh, with temperatures going up. So that there is a need to do that. There have been pledges, of course, a number of times. So the G20 itself sort of uh, has been very behind uh, those suggestions, but the money hasn't quite made it yet. So I think we need to to push a lot harder uh, in that area. So so there is no doubt that uh, there is a lot that the West needs to do to satisfy that balance, which. Uh, we absolutely need to see happen in the future. Otherwise, I think we will be splitting up. And of course, the spheres of influence uh, will therefore also be such that, uh, you know, the world will be much more difficult to control in terms of progress uh, in that area to control. Yeah, but Vicky, in terms of progress, it's very difficult to make any progress on all the levels that we've been talking about while this war goes on, isn't it? Given the divisions that it's created. 
I'm afraid so. So, uh, I mean, obviously, we're all you know, keeping fingers crossed that there could be some resolution. But mm-hmm. uh, if anything, we're do- looking at more escalation. I mean, underneath all that, though, we have to bear in mind that there are some good news for the world economy as a whole. And, and that includes the fact that, in fact, energy prices have been coming down and gas prices in particular, food prices, which, of course, have been particularly worrying for the developing world, are also coming down. I have come down for the last 10 months, uh, whether they've been reflected yet in terms of uh, what people are paying on the ground is a different issue. Uh, so so there are some some good news and the world economy is likely to do better than had been originally anticipated for 2023. Uh, but for the developing countries in particular, what is also, of course, uh, a concern is that partly you know, trying to ha- support their, their own populations through the health scares we had, uh, and also get the economy moving again. They have been borrowing more. So again, thinking about what the world institutions could do, the international institutions could do, uh, I mean, the World Bank, IMF and so on, the support that needs to be given uh, has to be significant uh, so that we don't end up with loads of countries defaulting. Uh, there have been signs of that, of course, already happening. So so there is a lot that can be done despite, uh, you know, the, the, the hostilities and the conflict and the war still going on uh, in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Nikita, what's your take on this? How do you think uh, where we're at right now in 2023 could shape the world order, could could perhaps lead to reform of the institutions? It's an interesting million-dollar question, like the other speakers have said as well. <laughs> the G20 should have climate change at the centre of its agenda um, and not be overshadowed by the war as it has been. Um, in the last G20 round, which uh, Indonesia, which happened in Indonesia under Indonesia's presidency, there were agreements on climate change, despite the Ukraine war already being five months in. Um, and the U.S. in particular signed, uh, you know, with much fanfare, uh, a just energy transition partnership agreement uh, worth something like $20 billion with Indonesia. Um, but, you know, and that that can be seen as progress and something that, you know, India would look forward to as well. But when you start really looking into these mechanisms, uh, much of those, you know, $20 billion is in the form of loans. It's tied aid. Um, it is very much in competition with Chinese investments in Indonesia in their area of climate change. Um, so there, while there are lots of areas, fuel, food, uh, vaccines, public health, climate change, where the global south and, you know, the, the more advanced economies should be working together in fora like the G20, um, you know, those need to be on a much more equal footing than what we have seen so far. Um, so we can hope that the G20, you know, advances these critical agendas. But, you know, that's a big question mark. Chris, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, you know, as I uh, listened to, to the other two speakers, that you know th- this this summit uh, in in September is going to be hugely critical. Um, and we have become used to the G20, perhaps focusing on on major issues uh, like like climate and and, and poverty, uh, but really now it's become much more about almost, uh, I hate to put it simplistically, by like West versus East. I mean, this, 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 this fracture that you've been talking about between the developed economies in the West and the developing economies, mainly, mainly in, in, in the East. And I think this is a huge 
issue now, uh, accelerated and exacerbated because of the war. And of course, President Putin is continuing to pour fuel literally onto that, that, that fire, specifically on this divide. And if we, if we do not get some sort of a resolution, if we don't step back from this increasing fissure uh, or, or gap in, in September, it is going to get wider. Because remember, the next two G20s will be also be in BRICS countries. The, the next year, it will be Brazil. The year after, it will be South Africa. So if you like, the BRICS countries now have control over uh, G20. And if we end this summit in September with a much greater divide or more obvious divide between developing and developed nations, then I fear that gap is going to get wider and wider in, under the next two G20 uh, uh, stewardships because they are BRICS countries with exactly that, that agenda of, of looking to uh, make, make, make the world kind of more, more balanced. So I think they, for me, the, the, uh, the, the key point uh, of the summit in September, uh, unfortunately, won't be, you know, what President Modi would have liked uh, at the outset. It will be partly, hopefully, it'll be some progress on on maybe identifying a way forward in Ukraine to at least end the fighting. But I think the critical one will be to prevent this more obvious uh, division between developing and the developed world, which I say can only get worse if if, if it's not addressed this summit. Okay, uh, Vicky, as we sit here, it's easy for us to say if we don't do this and we need to do that. <laughs> but what will it take when we, we get to September to the, the main G20 summit to achieve what Chris is talking about? Because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's pie in the sky at the moment, isn't it? Well, we're probably still going to have uh, the war in Ukraine going on, and yeah. now people are expecting it to last for years. So I'm afraid that's going to dominate whether we like it or not. But it will require a huge amount between now and September of diplomacy from the West and loads of discussions and ensuring also that some of those institutions that we've been talking about uh, do the right thing, if you like, and support the countries. Because there is a serious concern that, you know, with debt levels as they are, uh, we're going to have uh, you know, problems ahead. And if there isn't any guarantee or at least greater satisfaction on the climate change issue, uh, then that will also be a cause uh, for concern. And then I think the West will find it difficult to ensure that the global south, if you like, stays with it. Uh, Nikita, at this time of uh, bitter global division, could India position itself as a, a potential mediator between the West and Moscow, you know, using its leverage to do that? I'm sure India is imagining itself in that position as the mediator, a world leader, a global South country, fifth largest economy in the world, which recently overtook its former colonial power, the UK, uh, and you know is now ahead of it uh, in terms of total GDP. Um, but India must also look inside. So, you know, there is the external posturing and the branding, and then there's internal constriction of democracy, uh, you know, opposition leaders being put in jail, student activists, journalists being put in jail, threatened with government institutions, all sorts of, you know, false court cases. Um, so while India is uh, restricting its own democracy, it will it will be very hypocritical of it to posture as you know a great world leader um, on the international stage. So it you know it has a very good argument for multilateralism, understanding, consensus, um, but it also has to walk the talk internally. 
Okay, and Chris, as we come to the end of the program, we've only mentioned China in passing. What about China's role in all of this? It also did not support the G20 joint declaration sure. uh, that we heard today. Yeah, look, I think we're entering an interesting phase. Uh, as uh, uh, you've mentioned in your news uh, in recent weeks, the, the Chinese foreign minister was, was in Europe as well as in Moscow a few weeks ago, uh, talking about Chinese proposals uh, uh, for, for ending the war. Uh, we know that President Xi is planning to come to Europe and to, to Russia sometime in Q2. We don't know yet. Uh, so the Chinese uh, have definitely kind of stepped up in, in terms of, of becoming a, a participant or an actor in, in trying to uh, resolve the, the, the conflict. Um, and I think that's what it will, it will require. And I don't want to be, sound like an a, a, a unreasonable optimist, but I think the G20 it, it offers at least some opportunity for, for, for some progress in at least coming to a, some sort of a ceasefire. I know it, it seems almost ridiculous to imagine that right now with what's happening every day. But if you like, the, the, the West has become you know, so uh, supportive and so therefore so identified with, with uh, Ukraine that, that Moscow therefore is not going to engage with the West directly in terms of how to, to end this conflict or, or even how to start the end of the conflict. Okay. Um, China can't do it on its own because clearly its relationship with the US is, is broken and, and breaking. But therefore, I, I actually am looking at the G20 to see, is there an opportunity for the G20 to bring together all these different forces? Because I personally believe from what I hear in Moscow, uh, a big portion of the Russian government would like this to end, but they need an external intervention because they won't do it on their own. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Do appreciate it. Thanks so much uh, to all of our guests, to Vicky Price, Nikita Sood and Chris Reef. Thanks very much indeed. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Abdurrahman Selik, Abla Kalar, and Peter Taylor. A studio sound was by Aston Goodison, and the program was edited by Alex Otasevich, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrios. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode.